Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? If you haven't already, please consider picking up a copy of my book, In Defense of Plants, An Exploration into the Wonder of Plants. There's something in there for everyone. It's not just for botany nuts. And I thank everyone that's given me feedback so far. I'm really happy you're enjoying it. It's available wherever books are sold. But today, I am super excited for this conversation because it's been a long time in the works, and I am so inspired by her work. Joining us is Sarah Johnson. You may recognize her voice. She does a lot of the pre-records on this show. And if you are a patron and you're listening to all of the bonus episodes I put out each month, Sarah is a regular guest over there as well. But today she's here to talk about her research on an amazing threatened mint species endemic to the Florida panhandle, Macbridia alba, or white birds in a nest. It is a beautiful mint species, and it is very much tied to the longleaf pine savannas in which it grows. And Sarah's work has ensured that this plant has a brighter future ahead of it. This is also couched in a deeper discussion about prioritizing plant conservation for the better of ecosystems as a whole. And I love any time you can take natural history, botany, ecology, and applied conservation science to put them together to help species that need it. So I don't want to steal any of her thunder. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Sarah Johnson. I hope you enjoy. All right. Hi, Sarah Johnson. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're going to do this... Uh, a more casual way, just because the audience should be pretty familiar with you at this point. But for those that aren't or haven't listened to, say, some of our bonus episodes over on Patreon, how about we start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Sure. My name is Sarah Johnson, and I am currently a recent uh, master <laughs> uh, defender, and I am a graduate student of rare plant conservation at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, specifically working through the Illinois Natural History Survey. And I study a rare mint in the panhandle of Florida and also do many miscellaneous other cool projects uh, through our Natural History Survey. I love everything you have going on. It's really interesting work, but what made you want to jump into plants? Because originally, when we first met, you were a bird nerd to put it scientifically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I have always liked a lot of different things. I've gone through many different avenues in my, you know, navigation to finding a career, which I think actually is a good thing to talk about because uh, a lot of people I think think there's one way to get to your career or say, you know, how did you figure it out? How did you identify what you wanted to do? And honestly, the only answer I have for you is trying a lot of different things and, you know, succeeding and or failing at a lot of different things. Uh, when I started undergrad, I 
had thought that in order to do science, I had to do something related to humans being raised in Buffalo, New York. You know, we have a lot of cancer research, many hospitals, and it seemed kind of like a natural thing to do. So I went to school for pre-med. I loved my classes, especially my anatomy and uh, genetics courses, but uh, took a field course my junior year, which took us to the Rocky Mountains to do alpine surveys. Yes. And my mind was blown. I couldn't believe that you could get paid to do work outside. (laughs) I just thought, I mean, I knew ecology existed and, and whatever, but it's something I'd never really thought of. So, you know, junior year of college changing your career path seemed jarring at the time. So I started doing undergraduate research on plant genomics, which was really cool. And that kind of opened my eyes to a new area of science. So yeah, really uh, after that, I did a lot of different things because then I was just really confused. (laughs) I was a dog trainer. I (laughs) washed dogs. I worked in floral Um, I owned my own business for a little while, did a lot of like horticulture stuff. Um, So really like kind of all over the map. And I really loved just working outside, working with my hands and realized that maybe in order to get some of the skills that I needed, I should probably consider going back to graduate school. But that also meant that I had to get some field experience. So My first field project was with my friend Heather, who was doing her master's work in the Smoky Mountains in Appalachia, and she was working on food chain dynamics for different warbler species. So we did a lot of bird banding and, you know, hiking like 20 miles a week in the mountains. It was really hard, but it was incredible work. And so then I got really into birds. So I get this is a long answer to your question, but that's okay. I got really into birds for a while. Um, I'm still really into birds, but I think the 4 a.m. schedule was tough <laughs> for me. <laughs> and then I started working um, once we moved here and trying to find additional field opportunities. I did a lot of bat work, so I worked with consulting companies doing a lot of like fatality monitoring for bats mm. at turbines which was illuminating in its own way, but really cool work. And then working through the Illinois Natural History Survey, doing some mist netting and other things with bats. So I I just had this really wide experience now, all of a sudden with birds, bats, but of course, as you all know, you know, plants kind of are at the basis of that. So even within (laughs) these projects, there was a lot of habitat monitoring or identifying roost trees for bats or identifying different trees and what lepidoptera species were feeding on those for those birds. So it ended up, you know, stemming from a general love of of horticulture and plants. And then I found my advisor, Brenda Milano Flores, and she said she had this project in Florida working with this mint. And I, I said, yeah, for sure. And she did try to warn me that it was Florida in July. I was like, oh, it'll be fine. I'm so excited about it. And, you know, I really was. So I took on this project and, you know, come a year later and you're out in 100% humidity in in Florida in the middle of July. And you're like, oh, I get it now. I get what she was trying to warn me about. That's the warning. Um, Yeah. So, so big long answer of how I got here. But again, I hope it shows people that there's a lot of different ways to 
identify what you want to do in life. And, you know, we're all just figuring it out. So try a bunch of different cool things and see what sticks, you know? Yeah. I mean, A, I'm really, really impressed by how you have managed to, you know, dip your toes in the water of a lot of different projects and be able to gain so much information from them. I mean, your field sampling and I guess approach to field work in general is so broad and so varied that you bring a lot of different skills to the table. And I think that makes you a stronger candidate overall. And, you know, when I get emails from week to week asking, you know, people, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know if I have the time to go back to school or anything like this. I mean, you are living, breathing proof that, you know, the the route can be very circuitous. It can bounce around and you gain stuff every step of the way that actually makes you stronger wherever you end up finding the right place, however long that takes. Remember, it's not a race, people. For sure. And honestly, my customer service experience has helped me like interpersonally more than you could ever imagine or like project managing or whatever. There's so many things that really, um, you know, help you that you would never expect. But I mean, I've always loved just exploring and plants are always a big part of that. And, you know, in our daily life, but also in my work life, I love um, going out and, and finding plants. So it was a good fit for me, for sure. Yeah. And that's what's also cool. And I'm glad you brought that up is this idea that even doing wildlife stuff, very wildlife specific things that were, you know, awesome work, but also very specific to say like bats or specific even species of birds, you know, habitat was a big component of that. And when people say like habitat or even just habitat destruction, it kind of gets breezed over as this like address on a map. But habitat, as you mentioned, is plants and a good Wildlife biologist also needs to have plant skills. You don't necessarily need to be a botanist, but knowing plants makes you a stronger biologist, no matter what system you're working in, because like you said, plants are the foundation of all of that habitat out there. And without an understanding of those communities and how they're supporting the species that, you know, your species of interest relies on, what do you really have? And how do these projects even expect to succeed in the long run? For sure. For sure. I remember a project in college about honor leopards and it was actually doing population genetics and fragmentation between populations of these leopards and realizing that the limiting factor is that corridor habitat that habitat that can get these leopards from one place to another right and that was you know something that seems so intuitive and and obvious now But at the time, knowing, oh, right, we can't conserve these species without having that natural habitat for them to be reintroduced into or brought back into or connected to. It's, you know, again, seems intuitive now, but at the time was really novel. And, you know, now I I understand so much more fully that it's at the center of all these restoration and conservation efforts for all species and all groups of, of wildlife. So. Wonderful. Yeah. And what's really cool is you've managed to find a lab, Dr. Brenda Milano Flores, that focuses on plant conservation in a very big way. In fact, it's one of the most impressive labs I know of just because of the kind of work she's doing. The work that she focuses on is often with species that aren't necessarily large charismatic plants, although the one you work with is arguably quite charismatic. But It's very cute. <laughs> before we get into the specifics of your work, I mean, this idea of plant conservation is broad and vast, and there's a lot of different ways to get involved. But you know, why is it important in the first place to start looking at single species of plants versus, you know, just this habitat approach in general, in your opinion? Yeah, I think the habitat approach is really important, but looking at individual species give you a really different look at that 
overall habitat and different uh, dynamics that you wouldn't necessarily have seen before. And my advisor, you know, her, her website like motto is we do applied conservation and we don't uh, apologize for it. And I, I, I just love it because it really is true applied conservation. And there is a place for all types of views of conservation or avenues to sure. get to this work. But I do, especially just from my experience so far, enjoy the explicit nature of applied conservation. There's explicit goals and you conduct those goals and hopefully that achieves a very specific set of accomplishments, right? So when working with these rare enlisted species that are specifically protected by the Endangered Species Protection Act, you are usually trying to obtain specific recovery goals or actions for these species. And so there is kind of a, at least a framework that allows you to start chipping away at this huge, massive question of how do we start conserving these plants? And, you know, what I've learned throughout this entire process is that this act is incredibly important. It is the largest protection we have in place for plant species in particular, but, but many other listed species. But it's extremely limited by its ability to, you know, really get these species conserved and delisted so that there's room and funding for other species. Mm -hmm. And so in the example of the plant that I work with, it's been listed for 30 years and very few recovery actions, maybe about 25% have been met, maybe wow. up to 50% maybe now with the work that we've done. And that's no one's fault, really. You know, it's just the fact that there's so few resources, so few dollars, you know, plants receive around 5% of the conservation funding of other species, but they form this basis of, you know, restoration. When you're looking to restore habitat, where do you start? I mean, maybe sure with ground moving and, and earthwork, but with plants, you know, you have to have the habitat there. So, I mean, that's been a huge eye opener for me is just knowing that, and, and with Brenda being so firm about her perspective on, on applied conservation, just understanding that we have to start somewhere and we may not always know all the facts, but we have to start doing the work really to, to make room for, for more plants, more species to, to be conserved and protected. Yeah, definitely. And thinking of the Endangered Species Act and sort of the mismatch with what goes on with plant conservation versus other organismal conservation efforts, I mean, there is such a disparity there. You mentioned it. it's only 5% of the funding goes to what is needed to protect plants. And and like you said, try to eventually get them restored to a point where you can delist them and allow them to, again, once again, function as a species in these ecosystems. But there is a paper by previous podcast guests like Dr. Ann Francis and Joyce Mashinsky and others. It's a it's a quite a stellar list of names on that paper. But, you know, they mentioned that either it's nearly half or just over half of the species on the endangered species list are plants. And then when you look at that 5% funding goes to plants, and then again, considering it in the context of how much plants can help make habitat for other rare and threatened species, it's alarming. It's it's really upsetting. And it's one of these things that I'm going to parrot over and over and over again in hopes that eventually it's going to sink into those that aren't, you know, totally into plants like we are. <laughs> because these are really important ideas to bring up. The whole point of the Endangered Species Act is not to keep these species on there forever. It's to help them recover. And then, like you said, move them on so that other species that desperately need it need that funding. It's It's alarming to hear these sorts of things, especially from people doing applied conservation work. Right. And 
You know, the other complicating factor is that for many of these species, they were rare to begin with or originally before we even knew that they were threatened or rare. So meaning they're small range, they don't exist in many places, who knows, you know, what their historic range had been shrunk to. And so I think part of the challenge with these recovery actions is that if you cannot maintain the appropriate amount of populations to ensure that they are successfully either reproducing in the wild or able to sustain themselves with these rare, small ranged endemics that may only exist in a handful of places, they may never be delisted because there's just no guarantee that they, well, I shouldn't say never be delisted, but it takes quite a long time because it's very difficult to guarantee that that those small areas will ever have additional habitat, right? So that's always the the conundrum is it's, you know, yes, we need to maintain these areas where they are, but are we ever going to get more when we can't seem to stop losing habitat? You know, that's the real, the, the real challenge. And, you know, to move a little bit towards, towards the species I work with, this species, Macaridia alba, um, or it's commonly called white birds in the nest, is only endemic to four counties in the Florida panhandle. And in those four counties, as of right now, about 70% of the populations or of the individuals we know of persist on public lands. So the national forest, various preserves, and that has changed quite a bit. It used to be around 30 to 40% were on public lands. And so now that, that number has shifted quite a bit, meaning we're losing that surrounding habitat. So Again, when we try to reach these recovery actions, how do we accomplish that when we just can't stop losing land? Um, Fortunately, the protections, the preserves, the national forests kind of are that stronghold, but um, those are at threat every day too, to extractive uses and timber logging or mining or whatever that may be. So so that's kind of, you know, a hard, hard pill to swallow when it comes to trying to recover these species. Yeah. And just to clarify, you said it went from 30 to 40% up to 70%. That's not because more land was brought under protection. That's because what was on private land was lost such that what remains is now 70% is that 30 to 40 has risen to. And so that's, that's really alarming. And, you know, firsthand being down there, having worked in those regions, you see the destruction that we can rot on this landscape. I mean, there's definitely better ways to do these sorts of things like logging and multiple use four different lands, but just because the land is, you know, these species are on public land does not mean that they're there in perpetuity or that that can't be destroyed. And that's a completely different conversation for another podcast episode <laughs> yeah. and probably oh, many, sure. many more from here. But the other part I want to bring up before we really jump into what's going on with MacBridea is this idea of what you mentioned in applied conservation, this, this application aspect of it, because that might not be something most people are familiar with unless you're in the throes of academia like we are just kind of finished up being part of. And so this idea between like theory versus applied science, I hear a lot of snooty academics, I guess is the best way to call that kind of scoff at applied conservation or applied research. And that to me is the most horrible thing you could possibly do because it's the application of science to understand how we can use what we've learned to do better for the species, right? And so what does applied conservation science or research mean to you in this context? Right. I think, again, the theory is very important because it helps us understand different aspects about these kind of sometimes unseeable dynamics within an ecosystem, right? Or whatever that may be. But when it comes to applied ecology, what I think about is, again, these explicit actions 
that are doable, right? You're, you're taking this, like you said, this theory and you're applying it to action for a specific species or a specific ecosystem. And I think of it a lot of times as it's very collaborative. You're working with agencies, you're working with individuals that are also like you on the ground, making management decisions, having these conversations with landowners or stakeholders or whoever these people may be that even if it's just at the bare bones, like ecological compliance, you know, you are working with other people that have these very diverse experiences with working with the public, working with other people. And I think that, you know, when it comes to what I consider applied conservation, it is often this collaborative effort of multiple people working to make the best management and conservation practices available to the masses, right? And so a lot of the work tends to be active as opposed to passive, if Mm -hmm. that's a maybe more approachable way to view it. Um, This work that I've done for three years is filed as a report, you know, and that report goes to individuals who will be making management decisions across this landscape. And it it hopefully will be published as well for <laughs> whoever wants to read it. But at the main core, it's at least that it is going to, you know, be used very soon, very quickly for for management. Wonderful. Yeah. And so let's talk about the species that's kind of consumed your life for the last three years, because it's an incredible plant. Macbridia alba, you already mentioned, uh, the common name might be like white birds in a nest, you said, or something along those lines. What is this plant? You mentioned it's endemic. I mean, it's not a widely known species, but it's a it's a very pretty species. So tell us about it. It is. So it's a perennial mint, and it's an herbaceous mint as opposed to many of the woody mints that you see endemic to the Panhandle region, like Conradina and, and some of the other uh, species that are out there. So it's only one of two species in the genus. Macbridia caroliniana is the other, which is a Carolina bog mint. And oddly, that species is potentially even more narrow hmm. uh, in its range and distribution than Macbridia alba. And it's got these huge white blooms. I, I don't want to say huge, but they're big. huge for a they're huge for a mint. <laughs> I think they're pretty big. <laughs> I mean, if you saw like a bumblebee coming up to one of these flowers, you'd be like, "Oh yeah, that makes sense. That's mm-hmm. about the right size." But they're not diminutive. You know, they're they're hardy plants, but they are incredibly difficult to see <laughs> because these tall green stalks uh, shoot up, and often they're in these upland pine savannas or in disturbed areas like, you know, mowed roadsides where if they are among the wire grass, it's almost impossible to see them unless they're flowering. I mean, you can, if you're looking hard, like we do, you can, you can find them, but that's why we do our surveys uh, May through July, which is when they bloom. And fortunately they have those white birds in a nest as they're called. They're kind of look like little white eggs in a nest, which is why they're called that. And that that helps them become a lot more detectable in these really kind of wiry, wire grass thickets, basically. And what we're learning through a lot of this research is that they are semi-tolerant of some of this shrubby or ground cover encroachment. So tall wire grass, but we don't necessarily know how long they are tolerant. So meaning over time, they are likely to be unable to compete with that increasing vegetation. 
limit to light access. Maybe they're not able to actually sexually reproduce and recruit. Um, they might flower less often, which would, of course, feed into that reproduction. And overall, they kind of form these little clumps or patches where you'll see potentially related individuals kind of spread out in, a, in an area. Um, but some of the research I've been doing is showing that they really like these transitional ecotones of the landscape. Mm -hmm. So they like this area between upland and lowland areas. And that's always been something that's been anecdotally known, right? If you work in these habitats and you work with this species, it might seem kind of obvious to you. Uh, but we don't really completely understand why they're limited to very specific habitats within this longleaf pine ecosystem. Great. Yeah. And it's, I can confirm <laughs> having done surveys with you that uh, it is a difficult habitat. You know, I grew up thinking mountains were the most rugged places in this country, but having been to flatland Florida and experienced, <laughs> you know, what it's like, it's beautiful. It's one of the most remarkable habitat types I've ever been in, but it is tough going. <laughs> It's hot, it's buggy. Some of the sites with the thick wire grass, you know, they create these dense hummocks. So you're tripping constantly because you either can't see where your feet are going or, um, or it's just so high that you have to, you know, you get a really great thigh workout when you're out there because you're, you're doing a lot of high stepping, you know? Yeah. Um, but that said, what I've really loved learning about throughout this whole process is just how important microhabitats or small changes, heterogeneity, you know, different types of habitat, how it really, really makes a difference in the types of plants that can occur. So for example, I consider my study area like an eight county area. And the total elevation change for that area in Florida is about 90 meters. And within that four county range is probably only about 50 or so, oh. 50 meters of <laughs> elevation difference. But, and this is, you know, leading into some of the research I do, sometimes that's really difficult to capture with coarse scale data, like coarse scale elevation modeling. Because yes, you know that there's a small slope, but what makes that tiny, tiny slope in the landscape different? So that maybe you know, half a meter of distance from upland to depressional wetland, what is it about it? Is it better drained? Is it better light availability? Is it less competition? What is it something about the soil? You know, all these different aspects that we're trying to identify so that we can build better models so that we can find these species or at least understand a little bit more about their habitat associations. Because again, these tiny, tiny differences totally make the difference. And for one, one example too, there's a lot of saw palmettos in the habitat. We often see them growing right around the base of a saw palmetto, but they like light. Why are they? <laughs> it's all very confusing, right? Like there's specificity, this different areas. So it's really interesting to see on the landscape for sure. I mean, what you just talked about right there is, is proof is in the pudding, so to speak of why anecdotes are nice you know this idea of like anyone that's familiar with it can tell you it's this transitional zone but that only gets us so far especially when it comes to proper conservation of a species and like you just said you have to start identifying okay what is it about this micro topography is it the change in hydrology is it a change in temperature is it a slight change in this irradiation or something like that that's why you have to start looking at this stuff in more detail because 
without the proper data to back up these anecdotal or these long-term observations, you don't know what you're managing for. And those are the the types of data that you need to give to managers to say, no, you know, maybe they do need the shade of a saw palmetto or something like that to get them going. But then once they need to flower, it's something about sunlight. And so maybe you need to burn after a certain amount. You know, these are the kinds of things that this applied research is getting at. Yeah, definitely. And I think this also highlights how important this natural history knowledge is, you know, Mm. muddy boots ecology, as we like to call it. Because when I started researching this plant and, and trying, you know, I started a lot by trying to understand the ecosystem. I didn't know a lot about fire ecology, grassland ecology in general. So that was somewhere I kind of started reading when I, when I started this project. But in addition, of course, trying to find as much as humanly possible about this species. And I quickly found there was very, very little, maybe three or four published works uh, and one thesis work. So when I was trying to generate some ideas and identify besides what we needed to do contractually for the project, identify areas I wanted to expand upon, I learned that it was kind of limitless because (laughs) we didn't really know that much. And so some work had been done on trying to identify pollinators, which is primarily a bumblebee, Uh, some work on some of the various habitat associations, which were generalist, and then quite a detailed account of seed ecology. So uh, because this, we, I, I can get into that in a little bit, but really just not a lot of tangible knowledge about the species. But the fortunate thing is that there is a incredible botanist uh, with the Florida Natural Areas Inventory named Ann Johnson. There's many fabulous botanists there, but Ann Johnson specifically was very excited to tell me every single thing she could about the species in her experience, uh, many years of experience doing field surveys. And our first kind of like pre-field season, which was absolutely essential because otherwise I would have gotten zero done because I was just every second I was like, what's that? What's that? Oh my God. What's that? You know? True botanist. Um, Yeah. I, I was, I said to my advisor, I said, thank you so much for planning this week trip the year before my research started because I would have been completely overwhelmed with excitement. So anyways, she went out with us to scout some of these field sites and take us to some of their long-term monitoring plots that they've developed And there were so many different things that she would just say, like, as if it was common knowledge, right? I'd say, oh, well, we have a couple sites we're going to go look at up north. And she'd, oh, that's too far north for Macbridea. And I'd say, well, why? (laughs) What do you mean? She's like, oh, well, you know, it just is. It's like, but why? Why? Why aren't they there? You know, and trying to understand the why to some of those anecdotes were really the primary goal of my work, but also just that wealth of knowledge that has been mostly undocumented, you know, that I'm trying to now document so that it's there for for other people to use. Um, So in addition to just all this anecdotal knowledge, you know, some of the stuff that I was able to pick up from these publications really helped in in formulating the ideas and the questions I wanted to explore outside of the things that we had to accomplish for this work with the species. Wow. It's alarming and interesting both to think about, you know, the species has been listed for quite some time. And when you came on only a couple of years ago, there was so many unknowns. And that's that's sad because it just goes to show you how much of a short shrift a lot of plants get, even when they are listed and it's known they need help. And 
uh, I mean, again, we could go on for hours about that issue, but, (laughs) you know, with this in mind, knowing that you have anecdotes, you have really interesting people to draw good information from, and then, you know, use that to apply with your science. Where do you go from there? I mean, what does it look like to start making applied research happen on a species like Macbridea alba? Yeah. Uh, big question, much clearer now that I'm on the other end of the, the research, but <laughs> <laughs> fortunately, my project, I feel like really filled out and was very well-rounded toward, by the end. You know, we, I, I like to think of if you're trying to figure out where to start, there's really three, you know, main aspects. I think, of course, there's many more, but, but these three main aspects kind of fill a few gaps of knowledge, right? The first being, if you need to conserve a species, you need to know where it is Hmm. and how many there are. And that seems really basic, but, you know, just as an example, many of the sites that have been recorded for the species are all, all considered presences, you know, all considered places this species still is, but some of those sites hadn't really been revisited or the species hadn't been seen at those sites since the 80s or 90s. And that's as long as many of those data records go back. But what if we use these as occurrence records? That gives us an idea of historic presence, but not necessarily where those plants are now. So a major concern is to make sure we're getting as much of an up-to-date picture of population status as possible and how stable those populations are. So that first task was mostly done by conducting a lot of surveys. Hmm. Um, I went to 98 locations through my first field season. And also I created habitat suitability models, which, you know, probably a lot of people listening to this may be familiar with, but generally it's a great tool for taking at least the the bare knowledge of what you have about a species and trying to use it to generate additional hypotheses about what types of environmental variables may be important to those patterns of occurrence, and then also using it to target your surveys. Because as you can imagine, for a plant that's difficult to find, Mm -hmm. and also kind of cryptic in the way that we don't know much about it, it can be very challenging to go across, for example, a massive uh, national forest like Apalachicola and figure out what is special about these sites that they are or are not, right? And so people need quick and efficient ways to, to do these surveys. And so the modeling had really helped us target some, some areas to survey. And I'm going to continue doing that this year. But we did find some new populations. We found about Ooh, eight, nice. <laughs> which eight doesn't sound large, but for a rare species and the way that we sampled I was very excited about that. And so that's an additional, you know, 800 to a thousand plants that we didn't know existed before or didn't have documented. Sure. Sure. So for people who are trying to target surveys, it's a really, really useful tool. And that could be a whole episode in and of itself. So I'm not (laughs) going to go too far into it, but that modeling also helped us understand that while there's not maybe necessarily a lot of ecological meaning behind that spatial data, at least it's useful for modeling the species, right? So yeah, between all of those 175 sites we surveyed, we you know made estimates of population size at each. And that at least gives us a baseline, which is how I'm able to get an idea that probably around 70% of those populations mm. are on public lands. 
because we did unfortunately find some areas of extirpation. You know, many of those sites that had been on private lands or on roadsides outside of those protected areas are no longer there and hadn't been seen in the last few surveys. So it's likely they're not going to be there anymore. Do you know why? I mean, was there an indication of like what is wiping these out on, say, private land at least? Yeah, I have a I have a couple of ideas. One that's very obvious is that to the west of Apalachicola River, there's been a lot of development and clear cutting of forest land for cattle grazing. So mm. cattle grazing is a massive business in the Panhandle region and much of the southeast grassland area. So that expansion, I think, put a nail in the coffin of a few of those populations, at least five to 10 of them. And then another thing is that what was interesting is my modeling picked up on this, you know, timberland being important for the species. Well, that's because Apalachicola National Forest is is considered timberland where many of our, our populations exist. But when you consider the management differences between a public managed timberland, um, which I would say the National Forest does an exceptional job at prescribed fire, specifically, you know, the Southeast does a great job with prescribed fire and management. But the the difference, if you put a public timberland and a private timberland next to each other, they'd be almost un, you know, unrecognizably the same. Because often, unfortunately, private timberlands are densely planted, right? You want to maximize your profit, understandably, but they're not burned with any frequency. They're not managed for removal of woody encroachment. And so oftentimes I'd step onto these private or like at the edge of these private timber lots and they're dark, they're crowded, very woody, a total different hydrology. There's not a lot of litter on the ground. Maybe they're, they're damp or kind of anoxic ish. Hmm. Um, It's just very different conditions. And of course there are, I'm sure you know, some private landowners that take pride in managing their, their timberlands well. But I would say that that's by far the minority, you know, the majority are doing slash and burn, grow up, slash them, burn the area and do it again. Hmm. And as you can imagine, that's not conducive for many species, let alone a species that has no seed banking or dormancy as far as we know. So yeah, yeah, and uh, the unfortunate part is is MacBride is not alone, and you know a lot of other things are suffering in the process as well. And and again, we could fill in the blanks for any number of species, both uh, plant, animal, microbe. You know, it's a sad story. And until we can get our act together and help private landowners make better decisions like that, that's unfortunately probably going to continue to be the case. But the flip side of this is that idea of you bringing more of the data to the table. So you found new populations, you've identified areas where there are new ones, you've identified areas where you've lost some stuff, but then how do you start making that connection to what's going on within the habitat itself to start identifying, like we talked about earlier, those aspects of the ecology of the species that are important for explaining why the species is here and maybe not over here? Sure. So that's kind of that second aspect of the the three things I think you should pay attention to is what are the what are the differences across these sites? So especially where we're seeing the plant, where we're not, you know, what are those differences, that underlying variation in these habitats? And I went to 175 sites and many of those were absences, um, you know, where we did not find Macaridia, but that is also valuable too, having mm-hmm. that data of 
where this plant isn't to try to determine what's different about those sites. And generally, you know, I, I took a lot of information about, you know, just cover how many plants are in each layer of this habitat are, what types of plants are they, you know, what, what are we seeing in terms of the landscape? Is it very upland? Is it in a wetland type of habitat? Does it have the sloping characteristic of the landscape? And while it was, you know, looking back, I probably would have taken a a, a set of different characteristics, or I would have documented different things. I think it was still really interesting to see that, yeah, we are picking up that natural habit of these plants being in this sloping area. So it's documentation that, yeah, this anecdote is true. Like we are seeing more frequently and more abundant populations in these transitional areas. And also that the sites that were heavily encroached with woody plant species or had a lot of canopy cover, we're not seeing populations, we're not seeing abundant populations. And so that's important to know because that helps us tie in this information about how these sites are managed, like fire management, and saying those things are tied together too. With increasing time since fire, we're not seeing as many populations and we're seeing smaller populations at sites that haven't been burned, at least within the last three or four years. And that's where the the majority of our populations are thriving is in that sweet spot, Hmm. you know, what we like to say that like Goldilocks effect, right, of of having not too little fire and not too frequent fire, because that's tied into the vegetation and how quickly that site fills in with with woody vegetation, which creates difficult environment for them to grow. Really interesting and amazing stuff to actually be able to tease out and and be, you know, that's that is direct evidence and and something you could take package up into something that's understandable for say a land manager, someone that's in charge of, you know, the burn regime of a given area. That's something that translates very well to applied conservation work because if you know it's not too little it's not too much it's that goldilocks zone or what they call sometimes this intermediate disturbance hypothesis where yeah too much or too little not very good but here's a good target to aim for and we know x amount of years between fires can generate that at least long enough to allow these species to get to a population size where they can flower set seed and hopefully reproduce to start the process over again Right. And we know this isn't going to be the same for all of those species in that Hmm. habitat, right? But generally, I mean, this area, the longleaf pine ecosystem would have burned every one to three years or so anyways. And it's very unlikely the same spot would burn every year or the same spot would only burn on a three-year interval. And so what we learn from understanding at the species level is that this variation is really important too. And I think that many land managers understand and know this based on this type of research that we don't want to burn the same time every year. We want to vary that burn regime so that we can maximize all of these species that have evolved here. So, so Scutellaria floridana, for example, it seems, yeah, another really adorable mint that is listed. That is one that we're learning that probably pops up you know, with regularity, like no matter what time of year, like six months after a burn, Mm. you know, every, every time you burn, you can expect that it would be popping up around that time. So not only does that tell us a little bit of information about the species and other species that are associated with it, 
it can help you find that species better, right? So now that we are picking up this trend, or in the case of Macridia, know that that three to four year range seems to be the, the time where we're seeing the largest population size, that not only helps us manage for it, but it helps us find it better. Hmm. So maybe you're not finding Scutellaria floridana very frequently because your timing is off on your searches or, you know, just just understanding that temporal nature can help us find these very cryptic species a lot more efficiently. And, you know, when you're someone who's doing field work the majority of the year, you want to be able to time out those surveys to maximize your impact, right? So it's it's really cool that, um, you know, some of those patterns can be, can be detectable because nature's so hard to uh, figure out. Sure. So complex, you know. Yeah. And going back to, you know, the lack of human power and funding for this uh, sort of stuff. I mean, not only is it good to know how to better manage for the species, but like you said, finding the species or surveying, you don't want to be wasting time to do that either because you only have so much time and human power to go around. And so, yes, being able to identify those features, maybe go look in areas that have the specific burn regime will increase your chances chances of detection and increase the chances of being able to you know bring more species into cultivation but the other part of that too is what you just outlined is this idea of like heterogeneity in the landscape one size is not a fit all strategy for all species not even the neighbors of macbridia you know certain species right. are going to respond one way and certain are going to respond to another and that's why different sort of patterns and processes on the landscape even from a management perspective are so vital because if you treat the landscape all one way all the same way all the time you're really only managing for that subset of species that benefits from it you know like finding one species can mean you're not going to find another and that's an important thing to drive home is that we have to vary our ways of working with the landscape as well yeah and i think understanding that that isn't how nature would work. Like I said, you're not going to expect lightning to strike the same place <laughs> every year, <laughs> you know, and that's mostly how this natural fire would have occurred was by, you know, humans, but also lightning strikes. And so when you're trying to mimic what is happening in the natural environment, that variation is the most important thing you can do. But at the same time, it's good for us to know now that, for example, it's very unlikely that insights that have, you know, I think maybe some of my sites, the most extreme were that they hadn't been burned in seven to 10 years. I think mm. 10 was the longest, which is unusual because like I said, Apalachicola, the national, the forest service does a great job at managing with fire in these areas. But some of the smaller populations were, or many of our absences, I should also say, were in those areas that had been not burned within the past seven to 10 years. And that makes sense because, again, anecdotally, what we know about the species is that they seem to not be tolerant of that woody encroachment that happens with more time since burn. And that beyond that, you know, one thing I'd, I'd like to try to quantify is this reproductive aspect of how long can they actually sustain maybe as adults, but that's only one part of the life cycle, right? So these mature plants may be able to persist in the landscape for a certain amount of time, but if they can't sexually reproduce, create new propagules that can continue on, is this having genetic implications? That's kind of the idea that we're getting. Um, and really knowing that if we don't burn, at least within five to seven years, for example, we may not see that population there ever again, unless hmm. 
it's introduced on its own. And I think that's probably the case for many plants where they just don't have that that longevity. You know, you always hear about these miraculous stories of the seeds that were found in the <laughs> bottle buried under the soil for 30 years or like, you know, the one that was found in the permafrost and it was preserved for this many years. I mean, these are extreme cases, right? right? Where so sure, some plants can persist for very, very long periods of time, but many can't. So if they hmm. aren't able to persist, we need to know that about that plant so that we don't potentially waste what we have left, assuming that eventually we'll restore, we'll burn this place, we'll restore it, and they might pop up. Because it's seeming like, at least with Macbridea, that's not the case, that it can't just resurrect from the ground. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not able to do that. So, Yeah, unfortunately, not all species have a persistent seed bank that can last a couple months, let alone years or decades. And that's also alarming to think about that if we kind of fall back on this idea, oh, well, there's seeds there if we just kind of get around to it. Not always the case, but you know, again, to bring up that reproductive component is really important as well, because a lot of times, you know, just finding adult plants doesn't mean you have a functioning population. It could just mean that the the, the conditions for germination have long since disappeared, and now you just have a nice garden, uh, technically, that's that's dwindling. And so trying to study the reproductive component, or at least what recruitment dynamics are needed to successfully establish a new generation of these plants is just as vital to conservation work, because that's, I mean, that's how you get new plants, right? Yeah, definitely. And that, that is kind of the, the third part of my research that I wanted to cover is just revisiting the work that had been previously done. There is a lot of work on seed dormancy and banking with the species. So that was good. We knew that it was unlikely that, you know, we would be able to store this seed long term. And that's something that hopefully we're going to be developing and working on in the future. At least individuals will be working on. But knowing that it doesn't have this storage capacity, there are still some interesting things that we can understand from revisiting those populations and saying, okay, well, that was 20 years ago. Are these seeds that are being produced by these populations still viable? Are they still setting fruit? You know, maybe that can give us some indication of their, you know, genetics and and how, how viable these populations are. So we, we did find some populations to collect seed from, and overall they, they are not producing a lot of seed. They produce quite a lot of flowers, which makes you think, oh yeah, they're they're probably getting visited and they're showy, beautiful flowers that any bumblebee would want to check out, <laughs> right? But as you, you know, you were there, we we looked inside those calices and we're like, oh yeah, that looks good. Let's bag that one. And then you go to collect it later and it has no no fruit. You're like, oh, that's interesting. So not a lot of fruit set, not a lot of seed produced. But the seed that we collected was still pretty viable. Um, we didn't do any long-term studies ba- because, again, based on that previous work, we know that we have a specific window with which to plant those seeds and get them growing. But I think the kind of what seems maybe obvious here is that, yeah, we we have some seed, although limited. So if you have this, these plants and populations that maybe aren't producing a lot of seed, And then you add the complication of natural herbivores or some of that Mm. uh, seed pre-germinating and not making it to that recruitment stage. And then on top of that, you also add 
uh, lack of management where maybe they have no recruitment because they're not landing in a place that is a, is a safe, safe, safe site for them to recruit. That complicates this issue fourfold, right? So you have all these these layers that are adding to the the reproductive dynamics that are are kind of difficult to to narrow down. Which is the main problem, right? Is it genetics? Is it the propagule material? Is it that they're not getting to a place that they need to grow? And so, all in all, like this this component of it seems very straightforward. But I think it's one of the most important because it tells us that if we collect seed, propagate them, and outplant them, there is a chance that we can, with not so difficult time, grow these plants and outplant them into areas or reintroduce them to potentially new areas. Um, but this is the whole you know, ethical question is, <laughs> is we have this remaining population, really, or this remaining set of populations, and how do we treat those, right? And so this is where we're kind of developing this work in the future is that a main goal of protecting this species is trying to reintroduce it and and also providing safeguarding in ex situ conservation, either in collections or, you know, growing them out for the purpose of actually creating and outplanting material. This is a massive area of, of need for the species. And so you can't expect to be able to successfully grow them without attempting it, right? <laughs> so hopefully all of this will also help those efforts to keep them in cultivation and, and maybe put them back out into the wild in either known areas or, or new habitats, because that's part of the process is things are going to be changing. We all know this. And so maybe looking beyond just the places we know that it's been before and and trying to create areas for it where it can thrive and, and succeed. Yeah. I mean, this really brings up this idea of like, is the rarity of a plant exacerbating the issue of all of this? I mean, you can imagine an instance in your head where these populations dwindle. They're no longer as apparent to pollinators. They're getting fewer visits or they're just not there's too much space in between unrelated individuals. It just compounds things when plants grow more and more rare on the landscape, again, with some caveats for whatever their reproductive strategy and structure truly is. But it gives me hope to hear this conversation turning into something about how do we grow these plants, figure out what they need, and then get them back out on the landscape, restoring some of it, not just preserving as is and and going, well, we can't touch anything for fear of, oh, no, I don't know, we might not do something that's supernatural. But like, if we don't do something for a species, there's a good indication based on what you've just told us that we're going to lose more of them. And so, yeah, I'm really encouraged at least to hear that there's talk of growing, propagating, and potentially outplanting some of these to supplement some of what's been lost and maybe create new populations in the process, which, you know, again, philosophical discussions on that part of it aside. Sure. Um, but, you know, in the work you've done and the time you spent in this system, do you have hope for Macbridea? Is this a species you think... A, needs to be continually protected, you know, not delisted as it's up for a candidate for, but also, you know, with effort, is this a species you think can be saved? I do. And I actually wonder, and I think other people who work with it may wonder why it's not a common garden plant. Like it's just, uh, (laughs) it's beautiful, but this is the thing. It's more temperamental maybe than we understand. Right. Mm. And I do have hope for it. I think that Again, the management that's occurring on these public lands is exceptional. 
I think that they are really the reason that these populations exist still today. And I think that, you know, some some shining lights have occurred, like the acquisition of quite a lot of land to the west of Apalachicola River, which is one area that these populations had been extirpated from in at least some of those sites. And so this acquisition now means that that land that, you know, some of those lands either that had been converted for cattle or were privately owned for timber may in the future be well-managed longleaf pine ecosystem again, Hmm. which is really great. That said, being already narrow to only four counties, and then within that being even more narrow to only public lands, that creates a very interesting challenge. Because as we all know, two years ago, a massive hurricane, Hurricane Michael, came through the panhandle of Florida and wrecked many areas. And especially areas right on the coast where impact was the, the worst, you know, you don't only have to worry about that devastation of tree fall and debris and whatever else comes, you have this saltwater inundation and you have um, sewage water from housing and and all sorts of other complications that fortunately, the at least some of those populations I had checked on on the coast are doing okay, but they may take years to recover. And that's just another sign that if we don't have that diversity of habitat Mm. or range of populations, and you are hoping that just the populations in Appalachia survive, for example, that's a lot hinging on a small area, (laughs) right? And so we have these incredible stochastic weather events that are happening. And just banking on a couple populations or a couple areas isn't super promising. So Overall, I I do have hope, but I think that future work to try to figure out how to grow this plant, how to create more material, and yes, outplanning into areas where we know that it already exists, but hopefully trying to find some new areas within that, maybe within private land, someone who owns property that is within the historic range of the species, but where it maybe isn't right now, or areas that are promising private timber property where someone actually does manage their their timber lands properly. I think these are all areas that are probably underutilized right now. Um, and maybe it's just because people don't know, hmm. you know, that they can be, you know, that their property can be an additional spot on the map for plants that need a home. Right. And so hopefully that's the direction it's going. But yeah, I think understanding the species and just the ecosystem a little bit more. I, I think there's a lot of hope in the way that that management has been conducted in the area, and I hope it continues to improve. Wow, really, really great insights. And you know, I think more than anything, your work is is such a beautiful example of how one person can make a difference in this. I mean, I know you are not working alone. No, absolutely at all. It's not. a collaborative <laughs> effort, but you are one person that has added a monumental amount of data and information to the you know, potential survival success of a species that desperately needed it. And your work is also extremely inspiring in that collaborative effort to know that there are people that have a skin in the game, so to speak, in terms of how they manage the land, what kind of decisions get made at the policy levels that can affect this. And it's really, really amazing, too, to see, again, that natural history component. And all of this is focused on a single species. It's not this big theoretical sort of nebulous idea. Theory is important, but we have to use it to make better applied conservation decisions. And your work 
is truly an inspiration in that regard. And I think MacBridea and the Florida Panhandle ecosystems in general have a friend in you. Uh, but thank yeah. you <laughs> so much for telling us about this. Uh, if people want to reach out, learn more about this, catch up, or just see what comes out of your work moving into the future, where are the best places for them to go looking? Sure. Um, well, I can be reached via email. You can reach me at Sarah, S-A-R-A-A-J at illinois.edu. Uh, you can look me up on my my website, sarahannjohnson.wordpress.com. Uh, I create a, a zine, a Midwest gardening zine, where you, what you can find there. And my Instagram handle is sylvatica underscore Midwest Explorer. And I post a lot of pictures of my trips to Florida, my garden, many different things. But yeah, I I have had an incredible time working on this project. And as it kind of comes to a close, I mean, fortunately, I get to assist with this for a little bit longer. <laughs> I can say that it is so inspiring to see others that are working in this field, whether it be botanic gardens or natural areas inventories or, you know, different organizations that are going to continue working with this species. Uh, and it's, so it's, it's wonderful to know that even though I may be moving on eventually, it's going to be a species that still will, will have advocates for it um, and trying to learn more about it in the future. So that's a really, really cool thing I'm looking forward to. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for taking a deep dive on this species with us and for doing it in a scientific way as well. I mean, these are great things and it's awesome for people to hear about this and get insights into how some of this process works because it's a wicked world out there. There's a lot of different ways to approach conservation and it's nice to uh, hear from people, like you said, boots on the ground doing it. So thank you again. I will save everyone the trouble of looking those links up by posting them in the show notes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks for talking with us. Thank you for having me anytime. Of course. All right. Have a good one. Stay healthy and uh, take care. Bye, everyone. All right. That is it for this episode. What fantastic and inspirational work. I can't thank Sarah enough for both talking to us about this work, but also doing it. MacBridea has a brighter future because of her and her colleagues. And it's so important that we use theory and applied science together to help fight against plant extinctions. It's a real shame that plants get only about 5% of the conservation dollars that go to many other organisms that would greatly benefit from plant-based conservation efforts. As always, please check the show notes if you want more information on these topics as well as any topic I discuss on this podcast. All of the links in the show notes can be found over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Also, if you're enjoying the show and you want the show to have a future, if you want me to be able to continue podcasting each and every week, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. I absolutely mean it when I say I could not be doing this podcast, especially not at this level, without the support I get from my patrons each and every week. It's because of them that this show happens. And it's not all just to benefit In Defense of Plants. You get kickbacks for being a patron as well, including stickers and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month. Once again, that's patreon.com slash plants. You can also pick up merch over at teespring.com slash stores slash plants. It's customizable, and they feature so many great vintage botanical prints. But that is it for me this week. I hope you're enjoying the show. Thank you again for listening. But until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.